search the world But it couldn't fill me Man's empty praise And treasures that fade Are never enough Then you came along And put me back together Every desire is now satisfied here in your life. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. God 
We are in week four of our sermon series on Philippians. Please turn in your Bibles to chapter one in Philippians, verses 27 through 30. There's some red Bibles in the pew back in front of you if you don't have a Bible this morning. Philippians is kind of halfway through our New Testament in the latter half of the Bible. And so let me read this as you're flipping there. This is the word of the Lord. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is the evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you this privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you were having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Uh, this sermon series, especially in these early sermons, are going to be very repetitive, and that's by design. I want them to be repetitive because we need what you're going to hear this morning drilled deep inside of us. We need this to shape us, to fill us. We need the help of the Spirit to do so. Before we begin this sermon, it is required to understand it that we revisit the background story of this letter, the story of Paul's suffering that he had at Philippi in first, the suffering that he reminded them of in this passage. From there, we will launch into our sermon. That story is in Acts chapter 16. So if you like to, please turn there in verse 12. If not, I'm going to read it, most of it, almost all of it, aloud right now. So this is the background. This is Paul's about 10 years prior, Paul's first entry into the city of Philippi. This is what happened. We set sail, this is Luke writing the book, we set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had gathered there. A certain woman by the name Lydia, a worshiper of God, I named my daughter after her, one who is a seller of purple goods. She was hospitable, and I told my daughter, hospitality is such a good thing, be like Lydia. So anyway, uh, was listening to us. She was a, uh, from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. Now one day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that her hope of making, their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had stripped them of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. 
After they had given them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. I'm going to skip over verses 25 to 34, not that they're not important, but for the purposes of our sermon this morning, I have to kind of skip over that, but please read it because it's an amazing story of how God brought salvation to the jailer that kept them in jail. But in verse 35, after that event happened, when morning came, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. That's a funny translation. There was no, they didn't call those people police in those days, but you get the idea. Verse 36, and the jailer reported the message to Paul saying, the magistrate sent word to let you go, therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul replied, they have beaten us in public, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. Remember that? Underline that. Important. Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison, and now they are going to discharge us in secret. Certainly not. Let them come and take us out themselves. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. After leaving the prison, they went to Lydia's home, and when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters, there they departed." The word of the Lord. So, multiple sermons could come from this passage, but to help explain some of what we just read. If you were living in a Roman city like Philippi, you were careful not to rock the boat. You didn't want to buck up too much against the Roman way of life and cause a disturbance. Just a brief read through history shows what the Romans liked to do to those cities that caused a disturbance. Now, Paul came to Philippi, preaching a strange religion to the city, But some were interested in what they heard. Now the devil, an ever-present enemy, was found opposing Paul and Philippi. Even the demons shudder, as Scripture says, of Christ. And one demon who had indwelt this little girl was indeed shuddering before Paul and his companion. Almost as if the demon were under some sort of compulsion, or whether the demon was mocking Paul, we aren't quite sure. But this little girl was a slave from an owner who made money off of her through her fortune-telling. And Paul got fed up with her and following him around and uh, quoting the words that she did. And so he cast this demon out of her. Now, bad move in a Roman colony, Paul. But he wasn't a dummy. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was rocking the boat in the name of Jesus. He just destroyed someone's economic ability to make money by freeing a girl from demonic oppression through this strange new religion and its power in Christ. Romans were not permitted to do such things. They were to play along nicely with the Roman way of life. Therefore, this was the man's accusation. They advocate customs that us Romans were not permitted to do. Now, if that happened too much, it could create civil unrest and potentially even anti-Roman sentiment. The Roman legions will be sent to restore order through war and reconquest. No one for a minute in Philippi wanted to travel down that path. So they tried to shut Paul and Timothy down. They beat them, and they threw them in jail. Now, if you read the remainder of the story, how God used their jail time for wonderful and amazing things, yet the story ends on a peculiar note, and this is where we will focus on. We have to do some homework to understand it. At the end, when they were to be released quietly, Paul says, this is my summary, now Timothy and I, we are Roman citizens. We were beaten publicly for all to see, and we were thrown into prison. So let's have them release us publicly for all to see and have them lead the way. Now this freaked the Romans out. They were deeply afraid, according to Luke, who wrote this account, to hear that they were Roman citizens. Paul and Timothy received apologies and they were kindly asked to get out of town. 
Now, research shows that around 40% of Philippi would have been comprised of Roman citizens. I will not go into all the hierarchical order of the status ladder of Rome again. So a few sermons back, you can re-listen to that. But to be a Roman citizen meant a couple of things. Number one, uh, it meant that either you had to do this, purchase your citizenship for an extraordinary amount of money. Number two, you either inherited it, or three, earned it through military glory on the battlefield. The most recent scholarship available to us shows that to be a Roman citizen meant that you were promised due process if you were accused of a crime. You cannot be beaten publicly or killed without trial. However, if you were of slave status, the bottom rung of the ladder in Rome, or even a freed slave, none of this applied. Jennifer Glancy, a New Testament scholar, recently had this to say about public beatings in ancient Rome. Citizen or not, slave or free, a beaten body was a dishonored body. Any free person who was publicly stripped and battered with rods suffered an effective reduction in social status. She continues on. Whipping, which brings dishonor to the one who is whipped, is suitable only for slaves, so one who is whipped, even if legally free, warrants description as servile. Understanding the, the honor and shame culture in Rome, this was a big deal if you were beaten publicly. You were shamed. And for the Romans, that is the worst thing imaginable to happen to you. You were reduced in your social status if you're one of a high social status. But did you catch when Paul made his Roman citizenship public? He revealed that he was a Roman citizen after he was already beaten and thrown in prison. But wait, Paul. Why didn't you and Timothy pull your card out earlier? Hey, guys, you can't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. No. He chose to submit himself to a public event of beating that reduced his visible status and reputation before all of the city. This was a humiliating thing to be beaten in public, something not becoming of a Roman citizen. In fact, such beatings that he received will be reserved only for the lowest in society, those of the doulos of the slaves. Why would Paul submit himself to being seen as a slave before all when he was not, and then only pull out such an ace in the hole of his citizenship after he was already beaten and thrown in the jail? Now, finally, we get to jump back into our text today. Many of the Christians in the church would have received this letter um, and would have been there 10 years prior and saw what happened to Paul. Now keep all this stuff in mind as we dive into our verses today, and we will answer this question at the end of the sermon today. Why did Paul pull that out at the end and not at the beginning? But we will pause, work through this text verse by verse, and see the wonderful crescendo that lies ahead. So, verse 27, Philippians chapter 1, the word of the Lord. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you this privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you were having the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, there's a good verse to turn to a hammer and start whacking away on a Sunday morning service, right? Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Why not? Be worthy, right? It's not that kind of mentality. I grew up with some of that preaching when I was a little kid, and it doesn't really work, right? 
Um, it's not with that mentality that Paul was writing these words. The Greek behind this idea of a life worthy is literally translated a life of a citizen worthy of the gospel. It's a word only used twice in the entire New Testament. It's not a usual word. And it refers to a life lived within a specific city and within that specific city's values. Far from a verse to be swung as a hammer to a bunch of insecure Christians, Paul is reminding them of what kingdom they are citizens of and the life that they are called to live as citizens of. And here we find the topic surface once again in the Philippian church. Some were Roman citizens of a higher status and some were not. 40% of the city was, 60% wasn't. Um, we can imagine the church kind of mirrored those percentages. Perhaps some are even equestrians of the higher order of the whole city itself, right? We don't know. But however, he is addressing this church and saying, you belong to a different city where those statuses have no bearing whatsoever. You're all equal in your citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. They were citizens of that different kingdom that had different rules and a different playbook and a different way of living. But how does a citizen live a life worthy of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Let's continue on. So that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For to them, this is the evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. Now, the Philippians had opponents. We can expect this to be true because Paul also was opposed when he was there. And here we find probably the motivation for writing his letter. Unity in the Philippian church was lacking. You see, something very peculiar was happening in the Roman Empire within this new baby infant Christian church that seemed almost alien to everyone else. A group of people worshiping Jesus was gathering, gathering regularly, living life together, and not just any people, but people comprised of all social statuses in Rome. That wasn't supposed to be happening. Life in Rome was to be identified particularly by which rung of that social ladder that you were found on, and that was it. And all the honor that was due to you showed just how valuable you were to your family and to those around you. And so when you start throwing these people together in the same room and saying, no, 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 we're all equal in Christ, you can better believe the first early years there was some struggle with this. It took some getting used to. It was a whole reorientation of how they viewed themselves in the empire that they lived in. And then they were being persecuted on top of it. And Paul is saying, guys, you need to strive to be together in unity side by side. Now, to be that Roman citizen meant that you had high privilege. There were benefits to it that slaves and those in the lower rung simply did not have. And your own self-identity would be greatly challenged when you were being associated with those lowly people. And especially when some of the Christian slaves were potentially being beaten and persecuted next to you for the few who were Roman citizens— what choice would you make? Would you want to pull out your card and say, not me, I'm a Roman citizen. And then your fellow Christian behind you, who is not, what's going to happen to him? What's going to happen to her? Right? I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Christian and all, but you can't beat me because I'm a Roman citizen. It's hard to feel this tension of this in 21st century, but I'm trying my best to get your mind oriented here. This is the world that they were living in. That's the situation that they were living in, right? It was an intense situation. And Paul is asking them to stand together side by side in unity and not to be afraid of what is happening. And he continues on. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you, say, that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have as he was writing this in jail. <clears throat> they are suffering like Paul did, as we saw in Acts 16. And Paul suffered like Jesus did. He says that this is a gracious thing granted to them. The word for granted here is the same word used for the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, gifted, charismata, right? Suffering is a gift God has given them. That's a hard one to swallow, is it not? How did Paul suffer? What conflict did Paul engage? And why would he point to his own story in Philippi as help and encouragement for their striving of unity and to suffer well in Christ? Let's revisit this question. Let's revisit Paul's methods in his suffering. And I think we will find something that may just forever change. I mean that. Forever change how you view our life and responsibility as Christians, as citizens of a different kingdom, and also how we can navigate our current pandemic complicated world and also even more. So why did Paul allow himself to be beaten? Why did he do it? Remember, Paul and Timothy only revealed at the end that they were the Roman citizens. We've established how Roman citizens were the word of the privilege and right to due process to trial when they were accused of a crime and how those who were not citizens were not given this privilege. And even those on the bottom runs of society could even be beaten publicly in an act of dishonor and shame and jailed for little reason other than mob sentiment. We can rightly assume that the Philippian church probably looked like this city, as we said, right? 40% citizens, 60% non-citizens. So let's go back in time and play a little thought game. You and I living in Philippi, we're being threatened to be beaten publicly because of our faith in Christ. The church was publicly summoned to defend itself. And you know the potential beatings and imprisonments could be had by the mob. Some are Roman citizens. They had the privilege to avoid it all by simply saying, I'm a citizen. I must be given due trial. But behind you, your fellow Roman non-citizens Christians were standing there, and they saw their fellow Roman citizen Christians just get out of persecution, just kind of slide their way aside and say, nope, not me, and they sidestepped it, right? What is the answer to this? What is how we answer this tension? Well, most scholars agree. Paul mentions his suffering here because he wants to remind them of two things, or show them, really. First, that he submitted himself first to Christ and first to his sufferings, and that's why he set aside his Roman identity, right? His allegiance was first to Christ, and he'll take the beating if it's for Christ. His allegiance to Rome did not trump his allegiance to Christ. He knew that he must suffer as a Christian because this is his first identity as a saved man in Christ. Number two, he knew that the Christians there and the future ones to follow would not all have the privileges that he did. And the future ones um, will be of a variety of social statuses then and then in the future in this church. And if he was to suffer just like Jesus did, it was almost guaranteed that they were going to suffer in the years to come. He knew that they would find strength in his suffering and his submission to succumb himself to that humiliation and his courage to face it would provide encouragement for when they had to face it. If he, if he slid out as a coward, exploiting his citizenship for his own personal gain, it would have been shameful to remind the church of what he did. Oh, guys, remember when I played my Roman citizenship card and avoided suffering for Christ? I know you're getting persecuted right now. Um, some of you can't do what I did. Sorry, good luck with that. Like, what? he couldn't have even reminded them. It would have been shameful to remind this church of what he did. 
Christ would have been dishonored. His witness of a pastor and shepherd and leader would be revealed to all that Paul was more concerned about himself than his own church and that he was simply not willing to suffer alongside of them like Jesus did. Rather, like Jesus, Paul set aside his privileges. He didn't exploit them for his personal gain. He set them aside and knew that whatever privileges he did have as a Roman citizen no longer mattered in this new kingdom. His priority was Christ and his fellow Christians, his neighbor, if you will. Jesus could have spoken up at his trial, could he have not? I am God in the flesh. Yet he never played his Jesus card. I would love for somebody to show me once, just once in the Gospels, when did Jesus play his Jesus card and throw it on the table and say, boom, do what I say because I'm Jesus. Find that verse for me because it does not exist. Jesus stood silent before his accusers, knowing that he must suffer for you and I. Paul finds strength in Christ and knows that he must bear the burden of suffering that many Philippian Christians must bear and remind them that this is the way of Christ to set aside all privileges for the sake of God and for the sake of others. This is a way of being a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. This is a truly human life, if you will. And this was the word that the Philippian church that was all busted up in their disunity needed to hear. They needed to learn to set aside their own privileges and statuses for the sake of one another and be willing to suffer together for Christ without fear. So as we go in the back end of our sermon here, I think there's some hard words for our church right now in our nation and also for us as individuals. I'm going to start big. I'm going to go small. If you start sweating here, you know, I didn't want to be, I told Joel yesterday, I don't want to be controversial for controversial sake, but man, I think there's something that the church in this passage needs to hear right now. What I find here in this passage is Paul reminding them that although he had his privileges, he set them aside and was willing to be dishonored publicly and beaten, being seen as a slave before the city. That was the weak path and not the path of strength. It was a path of Christ who, although he was in the form of God, did not count that status as something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. You got me in a full night of sleep. I'm all wound up this morning, can you tell? And then it drove him to the cross to suffer for us, to bear the weight of sin that he was not guilty of. Now hear me loud and clear. I hear too many Christians and churches and pastors right now yelling, even angrily yelling about their so-called privileges in Christ and trying to exploit them right now in the midst of this pandemic. They like to throw out verses like Hebrews 10, 25, do not neglect meeting together as it is a habit of some, but encourage one another as you see the day drawing near. And they say, see, God wants us to meet. We cannot disobey God regardless of what the state says. So we must gather on Sundays and we'll do it without masks. And we have a right to do it because we're free in our nation. At first glance, this appears to be some kind of super spiritual bold statement that's also biblical. However, in such statements, I believe there is more of an American spirit than a Christian spirit. Let me say that again. When pastors and churches make such statements, I believe they're waving their American citizen card and trying to mesh a Bible verse to it. I want to talk slowly here, but I want to ask some hard questions. I am aware that it is hard. It is extremely frustrating 
to not be able to operate freely as a church. Um, of course, you have an idea. It is so frustrating. You have no idea the things I want to do, what the things I would love to see this church be doing, and I always have to say, oh, COVID. Oh, we can't. Oh, why? Oh, this is so complicated. I understand that communion. You know how much I miss communion? Just taking the elements of my, I could almost weep. I miss taking communion. Do you know how much I, I miss taking communion? It is frustrating. Yeah. Our burden is not ours alone to bear. Thousands upon thousands of family businesses are not able to operate. Families are bearing that burden too. All of us probably have friends or family that have lost jobs because of the pandemic. We have gym owners and wedding planners and caterers, even those who want to honor friends and family with it at a funeral cannot or have many hurdles to jump through. The precious and memorable event of a high school graduation was lost this summer. We can go on and on. If I see this story correctly, and I see the master story of Christ, and I see Paul's example here Philippian, for the Philippian church, it is this. Set aside whatever privileges you may have. There is a burden that many of us in our nation are carrying to different degrees, but it's being carried. And to the ones that think that they may be able to avoid it with special privileges, choose not to. And bear that burden along with our community, just like Jesus bore that burden for us. Is not that the spirit of Christ? I know that we have freedoms as Americans, but we are not citizens of America first, but rather of the kingdom first. I know that many of you hate wearing masks. I mean, all of us hate wearing masks. Who's like, I love wearing this mask? Nobody but the church should be looking for privilege in, as, pr- the church should be looking for privileges and rights to give up right now. We should be looking for that weaker place at the table if it means only that it's the most loving thing to do. We should be looking to bear this burden alongside of those in our community right now. Do you know what it looks like to the many others who cannot have a normal life and a normal work, who are suffering because of this? And they see Christians in churches claiming Bible verses that give them special exemption to do as they please when others cannot? It is likened to if Paul would have pulled out that Roman citizenship card to sidestep the burden when others cannot. If this day comes when the world is completely back to normal, and please hear me on this, and I mean completely back to normal, but the government says the churches can't meet, well, in that day we meet. In that day we go underground. We do whatever necessary to continue to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Won't be the first time in history that that's happened, right? And the churches actually tend to thrive more beneath those kind of environments. But right now our gatherings are different. The church is still allowed to meet. However, this is the thing I want to ask the people that throw the Hebrews 10 verse. There's many people watching our service right now at home. For good reason. They're not yet comfortable to be here. And we understand that, right? But pretty much all nations in our, all churches in our nation have this option right now to get a few families from their church and to meet in somebody's living room with eight to ten people to pray together, to study the Bible together, to watch the service together. This is widely available to still continue meeting, albeit creative manner, in our day right now. And that's even more likened to New Testament Christianity anyhow. So we are still able to meet. The Philippian church was divided over issues of suffering, of being physically beaten and thrown in jail for Christ. And I am seeing the church in America right now divided over masks during a global pandemic. Can we cast aside what privileges we think we have right now? 
Can we bear this burden along with our neighbors? Can we be gracious to one another who have a hard time with the mask and need to step their nose out for a few minutes and put it back? Can we just be gracious and kind and loving to our community and to one another with an understanding spirit? This is opposite of the American spirit. This is not a position of strength, but is it not the spirit of Christ? Is it not our, our testimony then likened to display how Jesus cast aside his privileges and loved us? Doesn't our community need to see a united church right now? Jesus doesn't really care about American privileges of freedom and citizenship. He cares about your life and his citizenship in his kingdom first. Most Christians in our world are not Americans. Most people in this world are not. Jesus was not an American. Did you know that? He was an American. And it's not his primary concern for you. The church should, more than ever right now, in a nation lacking unity, be the example of unity. Paul implored the Philippian church to be this. And I'm imploring this to be the case in Wilmington, at Emmanuel. We should be the ones carrying that uncomfortable burden with them and even extending a gracious hand of help, of benevolence, of generosity, of serving, of anything we can for our community right now, becoming all things to all people and searching and finding opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who need it and to spread the love of Christ to those who are looking for it. If you want to argue about your rights of Americans over the dinner table, that's fine and dandy, but are you willing to set those aside for the sake of others as a Christian, just like Jesus did? Now let's go beyond the pandemic. This attitude is to permeate all of our lives. Your elders here, your pastors here, me, this role as a pastor and an elder is also not something to be exploited, right? If any supposed honor or authority comes to this position, we are to seek ways to flip the honor and authority upside down in a place of service like Jesus and take the back seat at the table and place one of you in the seat of honor. We are to be looking for ways to set aside any privileges that may come with this role and to be true shepherds doing that invisible work of loving and serving and shepherding, not seeking glory or honor or gain or more authority for the sake of more authority, but seeking to serve, seeking the place of weakness, seeking the place of love like our Lord Jesus Christ. As we close, Paul in this passage and in this story, like Jesus, shows the path to weakness. Before we close, I want to say this also goes to the family. Do you know how much I've been just really thinking about I'm talking to Alex this morning about this. In, my, in the context of marriage, right? If you think that you have some kind of card ever to play up and against your family to say, I deserve this, you need to serve me because I'm tired, I worked a long day, I'm home, and I'm beat up, and I'm feeling tired. I love when I do that with Alex because she's home and she homeschools our kids. And she goes, oh, I'm definitely not tired. I definitely didn't have a long day. Let me cater to your needs. What do you need, honey? Let me tell you how that always goes in my house, right? I don't have a privilege there. I cast it aside. I walk up and I say, honey, you had a long day. I'm sure you're tired. What can I do to serve you? If that attitude permeates all of our life, we are mirroring that of Christ. And I'm telling you, the harmony and the peace that your marriage is lacking will be found if both wife and husband learns to operate in that manner. You understand how this, this should permeate everything. This should be who we are. It should guide, be the guiding principle of our life. Just as we close, Paul in this passage and in this story, like Jesus, they chose the path of weakness. 
I don't want to care about looking weak in front of you. I mean, in my flesh, I desire to look strong, to be some dynamic, impressive leader, and for you to be wooed by my preaching and my, my personality and blah, 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 blah. But in Christ, all that stuff is to be set aside if only it means that he is glorified. I'm going to do a string of Bible verses for encouragement in this manner because I want to show you what happens when we choose that path of weakness, when we follow that path of weakness. What happens to the glory of God when we do so through us? Let's listen to these verses. Romans 15, verses 1 through 4. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 1, 25-29, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Matthew 20, verse 16, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. I could go on with a hundred more verses. As we close week four in our sermon series, I want to implore you, if you think my interpretation of this stuff is wrong, if you think that I am incorrect in my understanding here, if you think that I'm missing something, I ask you, please be good Bereans. Search the scriptures. Tell me how I have missed something here. Many church and pastors right now would hear my sermon and end up mocking me and telling me why I'm a coward or a sheep like everyone else. And I got to tell you, it's already kind of happened. I know we are still getting to know each other, and I know this. If I can say that my heart, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know him. Because he is beautiful. He is glorious. He is wonderful. He is the resurrection. He is the life. J.I. Packer famously said, I don't want you just to know about Jesus. I want you to know him. See the difference? I don't want you just to know about Jesus. I want you to know him. So as we choose this path of weakness, as we choose this lowly path, Let's be reminded of why God chooses the weak of this world and the weak ways of the world to show his power. Why does God choose to do that? Let's remind ourselves of why the setting aside of all of our privileges only allows for this world to better know Jesus. For, as 2 Corinthians says, for when I am weak, you want to finish it for me? When I am weak, when I am weak, he is strong. Let us pray. Jesus, may we choose the path of weakness just like you did. Lord, if there's anything in our life that we are just clinging to with some privilege that we are just demanding other people bow down and serve to, that we are just selfishly looking at our own needs above everyone's around us, Lord, I pray against that spirit. That spirit is not of you. It is of the devil himself. And Lord, I pray for Emmanuel. 
that we can be beacons of this spirit to Wilmington because this world desperately needs it. Lord, this world desperately needs you. It desperately needs to see the gospel in action, not just through word, but also through deed. Would you show us as a church how we can live this out? Would you show us as a church what this means to live this out in our unique context here in Delaware? Would you please show me as a pastor here, one of the pastors here, how to shepherd and to guide this church into this, Lord. For Lord, when we are weak, you are strong. And that is our only hope, that the world can see your strength and not ours. That the world can see the strength of the gospel of your life and your death and your resurrection and the power of the renewal of your spirit and not anything done in our own strength. When we release ourselves to that, Lord, it is when you ultimately take over and your strength and power and glory shines and we take that back seat. Lord, help us to take that back seat in Emmanuel. Help us to take that back seat that you may take to front and that you may be glorified. May we repent when we failed of this. May we turn from the sin that's keeping us from this. And would you help us to do that, Jesus? We love you so much. We want to know you. We don't want to just know about you. We want to know you, Lord. Because you said that you were closer to us than our own very skin. May we feel that closeness as we leave this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.